All right, so here we are, lesson 28, believe it or not. That's a lot of lessons on uh, preservation and perseverance. Thought about making this two lessons, but we're now on a timeline to finish and wrap this study up. So we've got two in one. So we got to, like I said, we've got to get moving. Talk fast. I always talk fast. <laughs> and we know our salvation is gained, but the question we have tonight is, can it be lost? And however you answer that question will usually coincide with how you believe salvation is gained. Arminians believe that salvation is gained ultimately by man's will. It's up to man's free will decision to enter salvation. And so they believe it's up to man's free will decision to exit salvation. So to them, you can lose your salvation. You can forfeit salvation. The gift of eternal life can be returned. Regeneration, justification can be undone. But to the Calvinist, no, true salvation cannot be lost. Calvinists believe that salvation is gained ultimately by the will of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his calling. It's his choosing. And therefore, it's up to God's unbreakable will that we enter salvation. It's going to be up to his unbreakable will that we stay in salvation. God's calling and choosing are irrevocable. So those who are truly elect can never be lost. The gift of eternal life is truly eternal. You receive the gift. It's truly eternal. You don't lose it by definition. So this is the final divide in the long-standing debate between Calvinism and Arminianism that we've been going over for many months. These two schools of thought that approach God's role and man's role and salvation differently. And we get to this, the end of the study. The last subject is no longer about the gaining of salvation, but now all about the keeping of salvation, or otherwise can it be lost. And last week we surveyed the Arminian position which is often referred to as falling from grace, where they believe that people can remove themselves from a state of saving grace by their own will, fall away, fall from grace. It's a hard pill to swallow to believe that the miracles of the new birth and regeneration and justification can just be undone and reversed. But at the same time, Arminians understand that despite the lack of clear biblical teaching, This is just the logical conclusion of the whole system. The whole system they've created pushes them toward this view. If it's all up to man's will to enter salvation, he can just as easily lose it. And so they're forced to come to this conclusion. And not only is it a hard pill to swallow, but it's also not biblically supported. We found that last week, and really to the contrary, there's huge problems with the view that salvation, regeneration, justification can just be undone. Instead, today we're going to survey and study the Calvinist position, which is often termed perseverance of the saints. And this is also the logical conclusion of the Calvinist system. But we find we don't believe it simply because it's the logical conclusion of the system. We believe it because of the abundance of clear and irrefutable biblical support. As scripture's testimony is overwhelming that those who are truly saved, and the key word is truly For those who are among the elect, those who are truly saved, they can never be lost. They can and never will be lost. So again, this position, it's often termed perseverance of the saints. This is the the final point in the acronym TULIP that we've been organizing this study around. The P stands for perseverance of the saints. And the basic definition of this doctrine is that all true believers will be kept by God in salvation and will be eternally saved. They will not be lost. They they will not finally fall away. 
It's not possible for them to truly and finally fall away from saving faith. Now, this should be obvious, but it's worthwhile pointing out this this only applies to the elect. It's called perseverance of the saints. Saints being a key term to identify those who are truly among God's people, the true believer, the elect, those made holy by God's saving grace. All those who have saving faith have divine life implanted in them at the new birth. And that's not undone. All those who have that divine life will enter into glory. The only thing that separates them from the fullness of their salvation is time. That's it. If you're justified, you've been predestined, called, justified, regenerated. You haven't been glorified. That's the the finish line of salvation. But for those who've, who've gone through the beginning, the only thing that separates you from glorification is just time. Nothing else can change that. It's just a matter of time. That's perseverance of the saints. We also need to point out, though, that the true believer's ultimate perseverance in the faith is brought about by God. And for this reason... This doctrine is sometimes called the preservation of the saints, alternately called the preservation of the saints. The triune God works to preserve his children in a state of saving faith, ensuring that they don't fall away. And it's his power that enables them to persevere in the faith. Both are required, but we find that God's preserving work is what enables us to persevere And we have to study that as well. We also have to point out that anytime you study perseverance or preservation, clarification is needed. Because the picture is not that true believers are allowed to be passive. It has to be remembered that the means by which God preserves his people is by their own faith. In other words, the, the Christian must persevere in the faith to be saved. So we're dealing with you know, two sides of the same coin issue, preservation, perseverance, they complement one another and you never get one without the other. So there's no concept of a believer who's, you know, they, they made a confession of faith back in high school at some emotional experience, but they've, they've fallen away from the faith, but God is still preserving them, even though they're not persevering. No, they're not a true believer. You never get one without the other. If someone is being preserved, By God's power, they will persevere in the faith. They will not fall away. That's how you know who's being preserved. And so the point is, they go together. These are two sides of the same coin. We need to understand them together. And it also shows us that any who fail to persevere and who fall away reveal that they were never saved to begin with. And we'll talk at the end about the very real reality and rather prevalent reality of false converts in Scripture itself. That there are not a few, but many who are not genuine believers. They're the tares among the wheat, the goats among the sheep. Scripture teaches that and tells us to expect that. So it's not enough to make a profession of faith and just say once saved, always saved, and then do whatever you want. If you don't persevere in the faith, living it out, uh, there's, there's no reason to believe you're being preserved. You, you won't be preserved apart from perseverance. So we need to understand these two sides of the same coin Separately, together, and just overall. So let's do that. Starting with God's side, which is preservation. We start with God's side of this equation, which is uh, preservation. The doctrine of perseverance really begins with God. Believers are called to persevere in the faith until the end, and, and they will do so. 
But man's work of perseverance is first enabled and ultimately enabled by God's work of preservation. God himself promises to keep his true children in his kingdom forever. Nothing can stop God from keeping that promise. Do you believe that? Do you realize that? Nothing's going to stop God from keeping that promise. In fact, we find the whole triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together to preserve the elect in the state of salvation. We'll see that as well. Let's go through some of these points. First, preservation is proven by the Father's promises. And let's turn to John 6. Some key passages in John that we need to set our eyes on. John chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there now. Come to the end of the study. These are passages we've seen many times now. But now we will look at them and point out the angle of, of God's preserving power in them. John 6.35, we, we looked at this passage talking about how it highlights God's will and salvation. It's up to his will. But also notice, keeping people in salvation is also up to his will. John 6.35, where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. We view this passage in the past to highlight God's will in drawing people to salvation where the Father gives to the Son this allotment of believers, this group of sheep they are given to the Son, and he will save them. But notice also, he, Christ says he will secure them. He's not going to lose any of the, those that are given to him by the Father. He doesn't lose them. It, it's up to him to, to secure them, and he does so. And he himself, by his will and the Father's joint will, he will raise them up on the last day. Nothing will stop that. It's a promise of the Father made through the Son that if you're among those given to Christ, given to the Son by the Father, you're going to be kept. You won't be lost. You will be raised up. That's glorification. It's a strong statement on preservation, that the Father and the Son will preserve all those who are his. The same point is made in John 10. So turn over to John chapter 10. Told you we got a lot to cover, so we will have to move fast. But we have to look at John 10, the parable of the good shepherd, another familiar passage. But look down near the bottom at verse 26. Remember what Jesus said to them, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. He made a big deal of that where he didn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. The status of being a sheep comes first, then you believe. The sheep are those chosen by God, given to the Son. When he calls them in time, they hear the shepherd's voice. They believe, they follow. That's the picture of John 10. But notice what comes next, verse 27. 
says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. That's what a sheep looks like. Verse 28, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If that's not enough, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's where he says, I and the father are one. That's a whole other lesson, but you can see the point I'm making here. The father and the son, their combined omnipotence is the deciding factor in our salvation. Christ lays down heavy, crystal clear, irrefutable language. The sheep, they're given to Christ. He gives eternal life to them. And at that point, they will never perish. This, this phrase, never perish, it, the, in the Greek, the negative is ume. It's the strongest negative in the Greek. They shall never, ever perish. It's not possible. It's an impossibility. Why? Because no one will snatch them out of Christ's hand. And no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one is even able to. It's not even a possibility. No one, no thing has even the ability to remove you from the Father's hand and the Son's hand. It's just a matter of omnipotence. The flock is kept safe, not because of the power of the sheep or the will of the sheep, but because of the will and the power of the good shepherd. If it were left up to the will and power of the sheep, they'd be lost. If it were up to you and me to keep ourselves in the faith as sheep, we would, we would have wandered from the fold a long time ago and we would just keep wandering. That's what sheep do. They get lost. It's the good shepherd that pulls them in and keeps them secure in the pen. It's up to the shepherd to keep the sheep together, not the sheep. And so Christ teaches exactly that in a very clear manner. Our preservation is up to the good shepherd promised by God. Now, let me read to you. There's a lot of verses here. Let me try and read through these for the sake of time. You don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9, speaks about us eagerly waiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son. You see here that God promises to confirm us in the faith until the end. And he stakes his faithfulness on this promise that until the day of Christ, he will preserve us and confirm us until that day. That's glorification. And then he stakes his own faithfulness. If God fails in this promise to preserve any one of his sheep, he's unfaithful. Uh, that, would, that would cause the whole universe to collapse for God to deny himself and his attributes. It's another impossibility. His name is on stake. His character is at stake here. You know, Philippians 1.6, where it talks about God who began a good work in you. Paul is confident that he who began a good work in you, salvation, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say he might. It says he will. He will perfect you and your faith until the day of Christ. Another reference to glorification. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, Paul prays for them and he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. He's praying for their, their preservation, that they will 
Hang in there. Be preserved until the end. But he's banking his prayer on God's preserving power. That God will be the one who did this. He says, look, faithful is he who called you. God's the one who called you into the salvation. And you know what? He's going to bring it to pass. He's going to ensure that you are preserved complete on the day of Christ Jesus. The fact that Paul prays for God to preserve, it just shows if preservation is up to our will, such a prayer is pointless. And really the Arminian who, who would pray like this, once again really betrays that most Arminians in the end pray like Calvinists. They pray that God would save their friend. That's a Calvinist prayer. They pray that God would keep their friend in the faith. That's another Calvinist prayer. But it's only appropriate. We, we trust God to save and to keep his people in the faith. And that's what Paul prays here. Because it's up to God to preserve. It was Paul's hope. 2 Timothy 1.12 He said, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Again, a reference to his salvation, his life, eternal life, until the day of Christ. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 18 of 2 Timothy, he's also confident the Lord will rescue me and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. See, Paul experienced eternal security, which you can only experience if God preserves if we can trust God to keep us, like we established last week. Now, 1 Peter 1 is an important passage. We talked about that in regeneration, right? Blessed be God who's caused us to be born again. It says in verse 4, that we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now Peter weighs in with the, these are all pretty clear, right? A, a, a super clear verse on what God has done for us. We've seen this verse when it comes to the beginning of our salvation. Blessed be God who has caused us to be born again. He did it. He caused us to come to life. And then what did he give us? This eternal inheritance that's imperishable and it's reserved in heaven for you. Your spot in heaven has got your name on it. Your name has been written in the book of life. And then he says, you're also protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, all these verses speak of the last time, that that final day, the day of Christ. That's our finish line, glorification. But the theme is we we can be confident and secure, and we'll get there because... God will preserve us. He will, he says, protect us by the power of God for that day. This is eternal security. And when it says God will protect you, it's a present active participle. He will keep on protecting you. He will continually protect you by his power for that day. The verses continue. We got two more. Jude 1 is huge. Jude begins and ends his little epistle with strong words on God's preserving. He says in Jude 1, you know, Jude, a bondservant of Christ, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who are you? You're called. You are the called. You're also the kept. That's, what, that's who you are. You are those who are called. You're those who are kept. That's what God does for us. And so he ends the letter by saying, verse 24, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to God be the glory, he goes on to say. Why is he praising God? Not only has he called you, but this is the God who he's able to keep you from stumbling and he's going to make you stand in his presence, glory, uh, uh, in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Again, if it were just up to your will, you're not going to make it. You're not going to cross that finish line if it's only up to you and your will. Rather, by his sovereign will, by the good shepherd's protection, he will make sure you, you get there. Now, again, we're going to see he doesn't do that apart from our will, apart from our faith. He does it through our faith. But what comes first? God's preserving power. His preserving power enables us to stand. On that day, to stand in his presence. It will be his work. And that's why he gets all the glory. We don't boast on the day of glory saying, I'm sure glad I persevered in the faith. Look at me. It was all up to me and my will. I have reason for boasting. There will be no boasting because although we did persevere, it was his preserving power that got us there. One last passage is Romans 8. So you can keep a bookmark in John because we'll be back, but turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 29. Here's another one of those pinnacle passages. We've looked at so many of these lessons have intersected Romans 8. And here we are again. You know, verse 29, we studied a little while ago. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Stop there for a second. We look at these verses. They're called the unbreakable chain or the golden chain. A basic order of salvation and what God does for us. And look, the point is, if you're predestined, you're going to be called. If you're called, you're going to be justified. And if you're justified, you're going to be glorified. This is up to God's will, his purpose, verse 28, and his plan. These are his promises. This chain is so certain that glorification, which is yet future, it's so certain that Paul describes of it in the past as if it's already happened. That those who were justified, he also glorified as if it's already happened. Yet it hasn't. The point he's making is it's just so certain that it's, as, it's a done deal. It's as good as done. Is it possible for God's predestined plan to fail? No. Is it possible to have someone who's predestined and then they're justified, but they're never glorified? According to this, no, that those who are predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't see any exceptions in there. I don't see any caveats or loopholes. It's just very clear. If, if you've been predestined, foreknown and predestined, that's where it starts in the eternity past. Well, guess what? It's just a matter of time before you're called, regenerated, justified, and then it's just another little stretch of time before you're glorified. That's it. it. That will happen. That's preservation. And the whole point of the rest of the chapter is to show that nothing can separate us from God's electing love. Right? You know how this chapter ends. 
we're right now we're in justification. We're we're before glorification. So the rest of the chapter, okay, but well, that actually hasn't happened yet. How do we know we'll really get to glorification? Well, the rest of the chapter. Look at verse thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Even death, the point he's making, can't separate us. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What's this whole point here? God is the one who justifies. So if you're elect, you've been justified, what's going to keep you from glorification? Who can separate you from Christ's love, which saved you? You were an enemy, but which saved you. What can do this? He goes through a short list, but it's a comprehensive list. And the answer is nothing. Satan and demons, no. Death itself, no. There's, there's nothing left to add to this list. You get the point. Nothing can separate you because of what he did for you. It's, God gets the glory, and the whole point of this is to encourage you. Because of his power, his preserving power, if you've been justified, it's just a matter of time before you're glorified. We'll talk about the application of that in a little bit. But understand the point. You know, we're saved by God's grace, apart from any goodness in us, right? No merit, no worth, no value in us. In fact, God saved us while we were his enemies. He showed us this pure, unconditional grace in choosing us and saving us had nothing to do with us, right? Like Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Basically, God predestined us and saved us and had nothing to do with you, just his will, his kindness. And so look, if God saved us even though we were wicked rebels, if he saved us apart from anything we contributed, if we did nothing to gain salvation, what could we possibly do to lose salvation? What, what action would be so bad that it would forfeit the gift that we didn't even deserve to begin with? We, we were so wicked and in total rebellion when he gave us salvation. What could we possibly do to take ourselves out of salvation? Now, again, that doesn't give us license to sin. We know that. We'll talk about that shortly. But the point is, God knew you were a rotten sinner when he saved you. And even as a Christian, we're still sinners, sometimes big sinners, but even that is not enough to take you out of salvation. He knew what he was getting. He was getting a fallen sinner. But faithful is one who called you. He's going to bring it to pass. He will perfect you, and he will glorify you. 
in spite of your continued sin. His was an unconditional adoption. And our goodness was not a condition of him adopting us in the first place. And so our continued goodness, although we don't have a license to sin, but our continued goodness is not the requirement of his continued love. That's what Arminians believe. You have to keep yourself in the love of God such that if you fall away, you're unadopted. That God's special love is withdrawn because you have fallen away. That's an inconceivable thought in scripture. That God's fatherly love is rather unconditional. It's everlasting. For any of his adopted children uh, to fall away, his elect ones, would be the greatest slander against the love of God. That's saying nothing can separate you from the love of God except yourself. And of course, Arminians, they exalt man's will above God's will. So I guess they're okay with saying that. But I'm not. Romans 8 leaves no exceptions. There's no created thing that can separate us from the love of God. And that includes us. This is meant to give us the strongest confidence in our salvation and our preservation by God. So first, that's the biggest point. But that's the first point. That this, this, this concept that first we are preserved in the faith. That we will. That the elect will be preserved. It's overwhelming And it's first proven by God the Father's promises. These direct statements throughout scripture where he just says, he lays down, he promises to keep us. You will be preserved by his power and none can take you from his hand. Is that clear? Now a few more points to add on to this, just to further strengthen the case. Second, preservation is proven by the son's prayers. The son's prayers, a special aspect of Christ's role is the intercessor as the high priest. He's the the representative, the sacrifice, and the intercessor for his people. And so if you kept a bookmark in John, you can turn back to John 17. His high priestly prayer where he prays for his own. He gives them eternal life to his own. Verse 9, he's not praying for the world. He's only praying for those given to him, for they are yours. They belong to God. So he's praying for the sheep, for this special allotment given to him. And what does he pray? Verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, a side note on Judas. We'll talk about him at the end. He's not saying Judas lost his salvation. The point is, Judas never had his salvation. He was never a son of God. He was always a son of perdition. And he was destined to fall away by God's sovereign plan. But those who were given to Jesus in his name. Judas never bore the name. But the others, those given to him in God's name, Jesus, in verse 11, prays that the Father would keep them and establishes in verse 12 that he himself guarded them. That Christ is taking part in this guarding work. The shepherd is guarding the sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. You think he's going he's gonna to go that far to die for the sheep and then just so carelessly let them fall away, let them 
you know, get out of his grasp. That was the point of Romans 8. He, he went to that length to buy the sheep. He's not going to so easily and carelessly lose the sheep. But the point I'm making here overall, though, is his intercession. That the, the son intercedes to the father to keep the sheep in his name. And according to scripture, the son's prayers are always answered. You know, an example, Luke 22, where Jesus knew Peter would stumble before the cross, that, G- that Satan would tempt him, and he would stumble, but Christ prayed for him that he would not fail, and, and he did not fail. We read Romans 8.34, where it says Jesus died, was raised. He's at the right hand, and he intercedes for us. That's why nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ, because the Son is interceding for us. In John eleven forty two, the Father always hears the prayers of the Son. Hebrews seven twenty five, Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So the picture is we have a, a great High Priest who lives forever. He made perfect atonement. He's already made full sacrifice for sins. Now He's at the right hand of the Father, and He's forever interceding only for us his sheep, that the father would keep them in his name. And so really the Armenian is forced to deny either that Jesus makes constant intercession or that he's always heard by the father. They have to say, well, I guess he's not interceding for some people because they fall away or Jesus interceded for them, but his prayers weren't answered. And according to the New Testament, there's no concept of the son's prayers not being answered. He always prays according to God's will. So the, the case from Christ is clear and another powerful evidence of our preservation that God the Son, right now, he is ascended and he's presently interceding for you to keep you in the Lord's name. And that's going to happen. The Son's prayers are always answered. Number three, preservation is proven by the Spirit's sealing. The Spirit's sealing. I'll just read for you Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says, In him also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is a short verse, but it's, it's teaching a lot. That it's saying, in salvation, God sealed us with the Holy Spirit and giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit. He was functioning as a seal. This picture is the Roman seal placed over a document or like the tomb. It comes with the full authority of the state. It represents the state the security and the protection of the state come with the seal. It's an unbreakable seal or without consequences. But the point is the power of the seal is is tied to the power of the one it represents. And so we're sealed by the spirit, which is to say we are protected, divinely protected by God's power in the faith. This is a stamp of divine ownership. God's name is at stake. So if you Lose your salvation. The seal is broken. You forfeit the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's name is at stake here. And his name is never slandered. The Spirit is given as a down payment of our salvation. This is a pledge, a token given to us 
of our future inheritance. And one day God will make good on the full payment. Here's a, here's a pledge of new life. Here's new birth. Here's a seed of divine life implanted in your heart. Here's the Holy Spirit. You have a little token, a, a taste of that eternal life. And God's going to make good and give you the whole deal later in glorification. He'll bring you into full glory and he'll give you the, the remainder, the fullness of salvation. That's what the sealing of the Spirit teaches and, and implies and promises. And that's why he's called the Spirit of Promise. And in those verses in Romans 8, continues to talk about what the Spirit does for us in our salvation uh, and, and keeping us in salvation. And the Spirit himself also intercedes for us. So the picture is Father, Son, and Spirit work together to guard us, preserve us, keep us in the state of salvation. And who is able to thwart the triune God's will, power, ability, plan, intention? There's none. The case is strong, is it not, for God's preservation? We'll add one more point here, hopefully quickly. Preservation is proven by the gift of eternal life itself. Several texts teach that believers right now possess eternal life. Now, eternal life, what is eternal life? It's both a quality of life and a quantity of life. It's a quality of life. It's life to the fullest, glorious life. And it's a quantity of life. It's never-ending life, right? The emphasis in Scripture, though, is, is often on the quantity, hence the adjective eternal. That's why they called it eternal. This is everlasting life. But it would be false to say that believers presently possess eternal life if they can lose it. That would be a contradiction in terms. Eternal life, by definition, if you have it, it can't be lost. It's eternal life. It's not temporary life. It's not provisional life. It's eternal life. If our new life in Christ could end or be lost, describing it as possessing eternal life would be misleading and false. And in regeneration, new divine life is implanted in us. And this divine life is likewise eternal. God brought us to life by his will. And he's not going to let our new lives be snuffed out. He gave us the pledge of eternal life. He doesn't take that back. Remember, scripture describes faith and repentance as gifts. He's not an Indian giver. He doesn't take back what he's given. He's given us the pledge of eternal life. We possess eternal life right now. He doesn't ever take that back. For the sake of time, we won't read these verses, but just you can do those on your own. All these verses in John, which says the one who's in Christ, the one who believes, has passed out of judgment. John 6, 47. He who believes has eternal life. It doesn't say you'll get it. It says you have it. If you believe, you presently have been given eternal life. You will live. You'll never die. You have eternal salvation. You have eternal redemption. You have an eternal inheritance. You have eternal glory. The emphasis is strong that in Christ we presently possess eternal life already. And by its very definition, it's eternal. It can't be lost. Otherwise, we don't possess eternal life. We possess something else. So that's the fourth point, a final point, and really the, the case for preservation. So, so far, the biblical testimony, like I said before, it's clear and it's, it's overpowering. 
The verses are just too many and too clear and too strong to go any other direction. That God will sovereignly preserve his elect. It's just not possible for any of the elect to fall away and be lost. But we're not finished in the discussion. Because God has given man a role to play. And man must play that role. Salvation is monergistic. Meaning that's all of God. We are passive. But sanctification is synergistic, which means man works with God to grow in salvation. Like we learn in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you have to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's power is fundamental. He enables you to grow, but then you have to, to grow. You have to pers- you know, uh, work out your faith. Well, the same thing goes with perseverance. God's preserving work is primary. He empowers us through the Spirit and enables us to persevere. And then we must persevere. You have to persevere to be saved. This is man's side of the equation, perseverance. This teaching does not mean that people can expect to pray the sinner's prayer at junior high camp at an emotional time and then abandon the Lord for the rest of their lives, and still think they're right with God and they're going to heaven. That's false. Rather, true believers must and will continue in the faith all lifelong. And they demonstrate the reality of their faith by persevering in the faith. And false believers are identified by their lack of perseverance. So look at some verses Again, i got to try and be quick here. Matthew 10, 22, Christ said, The one who endures to the end will be saved. It's talking about the tribulation, but the principle is the same of true faith. The one who has true faith will endure to the end. John 8. Hey, if you're in John 8, or if you're in John, just real quick, turn back to John chapter 8. Look at verse 31, 32. It says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, he said, if you continue in my word, Then you are truly disciples of mine. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Here he's giving the criterion for true disciples, and it's those who continue in his word. The the true disciple is ultimately revealed by the one who continues in his word, who perseveres in the faith. That is the ultimate mark of a true disciple, the one who continues in his word. We'll find that teaching throughout. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 tells us to stand firm in the faith. Colossians 1, 21 and 20 through 23 says that we've been now reconciled through Christ's death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and without reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Right, you get both sides. God has saved you. He's reconciled you. He will present you holy and blameless. But you've got to persevere. You have to continue in the faith. They, they always go together in Scripture. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, sit side by side, and this is our part. God will do it, but you've got to do it too. You have to persevere. You have to continue in the faith and not fall away from the gospel. A big verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-15 Listen, listen what, again, he, uh, what he again says of the Thessalonian church. He says, We should always give thanks to God for you, 
brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Two verses that are real big on God's sovereignty and salvation, right? Hey, we give thanks for you because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. That's pretty clear. And he, he, it's his will that you will enter glory. I mean, it's such a powerful verse on, you're going to be saved. Look, look what God has done for you. But then look at his application. He says right after verse 15, So then, brethren, in light of what God has done for you, choosing you for salvation, so then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. God's election, God's calling and choosing of us, God's sovereignty in our salvation gives us confidence of our salvation, but it gives us no license to then do what we want, fall away. Rather, that is our our motivation, our confidence for persevering. And the point is, you still have to stand firm in the faith. You still have to persevere. We are empowered to do so, knowing he has called and chosen us. But the message is the same. You've got to persevere to be saved. Hebrews three twelve through 14. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And he says in verse 14, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. There's many passages in, in Hebrews warning us not to fall away. And from our human perspective, hey, take that at face value. If you fall away, you're not going to be saved. Does that mean the elect can fall away? No, it just means you made a profession of faith, but you never had actual possession of faith. They're not the same thing. And you want to know if you truly possess faith? Well, just die in the faith. That's how you know you're in, right? You got to make sure you die still believing in Jesus. That's the ultimate assurance that you're saved. You must persevere and not fall away with an unbelieving heart. For the sake of time, I'll just read one more. 1 Peter 1. We read this before, right? Where God caused us to be born again. He gave us this inheritance, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you, remember? And then in 1 Peter 1, 5, he says that we are protected by the power of God. But notice, he says, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How does, you know, God called us, he chose us, he made us born again, he gave us a heavenly inheritance. Now he's protecting us for that day. How does he protect us? Through our own faith. God uses our faith as the means of our preservation. He uses our faith to preserve us. God gives us everything we need to stay in the faith. He's given us the spirit, everything for life and godliness. He will ensure that we persevere, but it happens through faith. Just understand, we are kept until the end, not irrespective of our faith, as if you can do whatever you want and stop believing. No, God keeps us in the faith by means of our faith, by means of our persevering faith. This is how the two work together. It's the same as sanctification. God's sovereignty enables our responsibility. But the point is, you never get one without the other, like I said before. 
You'll never find a, a believer who's unbelieving. It's a contradiction in terms. Someone who's not persevering, but they're being preserved, no such thing. God only preserves those who persevere. He keeps us through our own faith. And that's why scripture, like we're learning in James, that's why God cares so much about strengthening our faith, refining our faith, because he's trying to produce in us the characteristic of endurance, that our faith will be the type that finishes the race. And so he's going to bring that about. So the clear and consistent testimony of, of scripture is that all true believers will persevere in the faith until the end, and they will finally be saved. God will keep them. They will not fall away. But God's preservation does not occur apart from our perseverance. God works in and through our faith, our growing faith, to keep us in the faith until the end. You know, the biggest logical objection Arminians have against perseverance of the saints is that they say, you know, if you believe all this stuff, that means, you know, a Christian can just make a profession and then do whatever they want. They can go off the deep end in this sin. You know, they can just say, hey, once saved, always saved, and then do whatever they want. But as we pointed out last time, that's just a caricature of Calvinism. In reality, those who are truly saved, they will not go off the deep end of sin and fall away because they are truly saved. That's the whole point. And to the contrary, Scripture teaches that those who make a profession of faith, but then they don't walk the walk of faith and even fall away, that simply reveals they were never truly saved. They were never born again. They were false believers. So let's finish by adding this clarification. It's needed anytime you study this. The scripture teaches quite a bit about the reality of false believers. Given that God has promised he will preserve his chosen ones until the end, and given that nothing can stop God from keeping that promise, and given that true faith will never abandon Christ, What do we make of people who profess Christ but fall away? Well, like I said, it just means that they were never truly saved to begin with. That's the only conclusion. It's the only logical conclusion. But again, we don't believe it simply because it's logical. Scripture teaches that rather clearly, that they were just never saved. The Bible speaks about many so-called believers and even identifies those with a false faith. In fact, Scripture actually commands believers to test themselves to see if they are truly in the faith, lest they be found false. This brings up the topic of assurance of salvation, which is another subject. Assurance of salvation is based on the promises of God, the testimony of the Spirit, and then the acts of truth, love, and obedience. That, as I said before, the ultimate proof of your salvation, the ultimate assurance of your salvation is that you persevere in the faith until the end. That's that's how you know. It's kind of silly to say, like, you just die in the faith, but that's how it is. That's the ultimate proof of saving faith, that you died confessing Christ. False believers, they can mimic true believers in what they say and in what they do, but they eventually reveal their true colors in, in either living out disobedient lives in unrepentant sin or outright falling away from the faith. And so there are many examples of this in Scripture. 
In Matthew 7, 21, now how often have we quoted this verse where Christ himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And he goes on to talk about not a few, but many who call him Lord. They, they believed Jesus was Lord. They, they confessed him as Lord. These were religious people. They claimed signs and wonders, but they're kept out of the kingdom because they never knew him. He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They confessed Jesus, but they lived lives of lawlessness. And Christ says, they ain't getting in. They were false believers and he never knew them. It's a scary thought. It's meant for you to examine yourself. You will know the tree by their fruits. He taught earlier in Matthew 7. And there there needs to be evidence of true faith. The whole point is, though, there's such a thing as true faith. There's also such a thing as false faith, false profession. And the sobering fact is, he doesn't say a few. He says, many will say to me on that day, hey, Lord, I thought we knew you. And... He says, I never knew you. That's the problem. Matthew 13, we'll save that for time. But that's just the parable of the sower. It talks about many who, like the seed sown on the rocky soil and the thorny soil, they received the word with gladness at first. They gave the signs of life like, oh, is this person, hey, this, this person looks like they're on fire for the Lord. But then trouble arises, persecution arises, they fall away. It just shows they were never truly saved. The truly saved person rises up and bears fruit. That's how you know you have a good tree, good seed. Matthew 24, 24, Christ talks about false Christ, false prophets. Again, those with false faith. Judas, let's talk about Judas really quick. Arminians love to point out Judas as being an example of a, a true believer who lost his salvation. Because... New Testament seems to point to Judas like Jesus said, I chose you, right? So he was chosen by Jesus. He was a true disciple, or he was a disciple. He's one of the 12. But actually, New Testament makes clear Judas was never a true believer, never was born again, never was saved, never was justified. John 6, 64 and 70 and 71, Christ is saying to his disciples, there's some of you who do not believe. And he knew the one the ones who did not truly believe in him. He even said of his 12, and one of you is a devil, a diabolos, a slanderer, a a falsehood bringer. He knew Satan, or rather Judas, was not a believer from the beginning. He still chose him for his purposes, for God's plans. He chose him to be a follower, but he was never a true disciple. John 13, those verses, he's washing their feet. He says, some of you are not clean. And that was an analogy he gave of, of being right with God, of being new. And he was talking about Judas, the betrayer. Judas is always pictured as outside of salvation. Same goes for John seventeen eleven, which we read. And Judas was never a child of God. He was never a son of God. He was always a son of perdition. He was a son of the devil, his father, the devil. And so Judas is actually, a, to the contrary, the prime example of someone who made a profession of faith, who followed Jesus, and on the outside, in some respects, looked like a disciple. So much so that the other disciples had no idea who the betrayer was. Now, they were pretty ignorant at that time, but nonetheless, 
And Judas really is the ultimate example of a false convert who proves it by what? Not repenting, falling away. Same goes 2 Corinthians 11 that just talks about Satan who can disguise himself as an angel of light and his servants can as well. Those who are sons of perdition like Judas, they can just as easily disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He talks about false apostles and uh, they, they can can for a time, for a season, in some ways appear like servants of Christ, but you'll know them by the fruits. The, The end will always be rather clear and reveal who they really are by their deeds, by their perseverance, by their teaching and so forth. 2 Corinthians 13.5, it commands us. It says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, and thus indeed you fail the test? Look, it's possible to fail the test. You need to examine your own faith. Are you truly saved? Have you truly surrendered your life to Christ and turned to him in, in total dependence? The reason that command exists is because there are some who are not truly saved. Right? If everyone who made a profession of faith was truly saved, there would be no need of this command to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. The whole point is there are, sadly, many who are merely professors, not possessors of faith. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of Christian ministry is helping people realize, you know why you have so many problems in life? You've never actually been born again. You know why you're struggling with sin and you're depressed? You don't have the joy of the Lord? By your life, by your deeds, by your habits. I'm looking at the lack of fruit in your life, the lack of life. And all signs point to this person has never been born again. The counseling room, that happens all the time. So much so that oftentimes we have to first unsave people before we can save them. Meaning, we have to get them to realize... Do you really think you've truly been saved and been born again? Maybe that's your real problem here. And maybe that'll change everything if let me walk you through the gospel again. We need to take seriously the command to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because we have to persevere. Lastly, our, our time is up. I'll just point out 1 John 2, 18 through 19. That, I think that's a typo in your notes. It should say 1 John chapter 2. Where John told us, That many antichrists are coming, many false teachers. But he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so it would be shown that they all are not of us. John, in in his very simplistic speech, he's, he's your elementary level, but we need that, right? Just so simple and clear teaching. Basic point is, for these false teachers, false believers... You know how we know they're false? Because they left the church. They left the true church. They left the apostolic teaching. They went out from us. So they never were really of us. That's the point he makes. So like, it's very possible for unbelievers to experience some reform in life. To come in contact with spiritual truth. They may come into close proximity with the things of God. They may change their lives. They can act like Christians and appear to bear some fruit. They can show up at a service event. They can paint someone's house. They can do good deeds. But upon close examination, you always will find a a false fruit, false motivation, 
over time, unrepentant sin, and ultimately a lack of perseverance. Rather, the true believer, like Spurgeon said, is like a man on a ship, and though he may fall on the deck time and time again, he never falls overboard. And indeed, as a true believer like Peter, you can stumble and fall all, all day, all your life. You can stumble and wrestle with sin, but you never fall off the ship. You're with Christ. You're hanging on to Christ, repenting, turning back to him a million times. That's a believer who's persevering. The one who falls away is not. Now, ultimately, many of these matters of God's sovereignty and salvation are resolved by just having the right perspective. From our human perspective, we have no idea who the elect are, right? I don't even know if I'm of the elect or if you are. We, we have no idea who the truly elect are from our perspective. So therefore, you and I, we just have to run this race as if it's up to us. It's not, but that's how we have to do it. Like, you've got to do this. You have to finish in the faith of your will. You have a will. You've got to persevere. Those are all serious commands. We must take seriously the call to persevere in the faith and not fall away. Because in the end, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. So you better take that seriously from a human perspective. That's true, is it not? But at the same time, you view the same situation from God's perspective. And God knows who the elect are. We don't. He does. And he will grant them his preserving power to enable them to persevere. And so those people... In reality, they have no chance of falling away. It's not possible. And he knows who they are. We don't. But he does. This divine truth, though, the fact that he's preserving the elect, why is that even told to us in Scripture? We don't know who the elect are. So of what benefit is it to know that God will preserve the elect no matter what? Well, that's told to us, not so that we might run carelessly, but that we would run confidently. We are revealed that God's power is preserving the elect, those who believe, who truly believe, not so that we can say, oh, okay, I'm elect, once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want now, and I'm going to heaven. That's not the point. That's the false believer. Rather, the point is, I believe, and those who believe have eternal life. I'm saved. That means I've been elected, and I, I can be confident in his power will never let me go. I can, I can run faster now. I can run with confidence. I don't have to constantly worry about my salvation. I can really run with security and drive knowing that I'm not going to fall away. It's like if a bowler. You can bowl a lot more confidently if you've got the bumpers in. You know, like you've no, you're going to hit some pins. You're going to get there. It gives you more confidence. You can just actually focus on what you're trying to do. Anyway. We are told these truths to give us confidence. We're meant to have confidence and assurance in our salvation so that we might experience peace and comfort and joy knowing we we really do possess eternal life and that we will be glorified. It's given to us to make us run with, with more fervor and confidence and zeal. And that only magnifies God's glory for our salvation because he's the one who who bought us who saved us he's the one who's going to keep us and so we give him all the glory for for it we must persevere but once we cross the finish line we're not going to pat ourselves on the back and saying well i'm i did a great job there i mean that that was a great race did you see how faithfully i ran that race and persevered to the end that may be true but we're going to say like jude says in in his letter again 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Before all time and now and forever. Amen. And that really is fitting words to end on. We have our part to play. It's perseverance. And take it seriously. Face value. You must persevere to be saved. That's how you know, ultimately, you're a true believer. So keep running. But take confidence and encouragement and joy. Knowing that as you confess Christ, God is holding on to you. He will never let you go. His hands are stronger than yours, even when you feel weak. So just persevere with confidence and joy. And when you get there, you know, before, now, and forever, give him the glory. Because he is the Savior. Uh, past, present, future, this is his salvation. And that's what the doctrines of grace are all about. It's by his grace. Before, now, future, past, present, future. His calling, his choosing, his preserving, his keeping. So we give him all the glory. Let's do that now. Let's finish up and, and pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we do indeed give you all the glory through the Son and the Spirit for your work in our salvation. You are the Savior. Father, Son, and Spirit are our saving triune God, and we worship you. You saved us in eternity past by your calling, your choosing, your electing. You saved us in, in present, in our lives, by calling us to faith, regenerating us, justifying us through faith. And you will finish our salvation in the future in glorifying us, raising us from the dead, giving us new bodies fit for an eternity with you. This salvation, Lord, it, it belongs to you. It's yours from start to finish. That's what we've learned in this series, these doctrines of grace. And, and so we will we'll magnify you. We can't boast. It's all by your grace that we've been called and chosen, that we persevere even. It's by your grace. We must do our part in sanctification and perseverance. And we will, Lord, give us the strength by the Spirit to do so. But even that, we can pray confidently, knowing that's your will, that we persevere. So may we press on and, and just give you the glory. Give us joy. Give us comfort, knowing that even if we're suffering, and even though we lose everything, we still can't be separated from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's all we really need. We're living for eternity, Lord. And so keep us in the faith until that day. And may we just worship you forever. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.